you, Zach. The good and faithful elder of the many that our church family has been blessed with. Well, on the heels of Jesus' words that we looked at last week of being the light that has come into the world, a number of that crowd is moved to belief or some kind of belief as they claim to be believers and Jesus shifts his tone to them. He shifts his attention to them and in addressing them from verse 30, they go from believing in Jesus to verse 59, they go to looking for stones to kill Jesus. 30 verses, a dialogue that exposes them as he is the light demonstrated. They go as those who claim to believe in the light to desiring to turn off the light. In this text, God, who is the great gift giver, takes a scene of incredible conflict. He takes a scene of exposure, and he gives us a a gift here that we're going to zoom in on this morning of four different components of what it is to be a true believer, what it means to be a disciple, a learner of Jesus, one who abides in Jesus. So in this interaction that Jesus has with actual unbelievers that claim to be believers, in that interaction, we gain an insight to what actually is a believer. What is a Christian? What is a disciple? What does it mean when we say those words? Jesus defines that for us this morning. So let's note as we look and zoom in first in verse 30 to 31, the disciples are set free to abide in Jesus. What's it mean to be a believer? What's it mean to be a disciple? What's it mean to be a Christian? First, it is this, that they are set free to abide in Jesus. I don't know if you have ever taken Mentos and put it on Coca-Cola or into it. If you haven't done so, you can watch a video on the internet or... You don't have to. There's no reason to do that. But I did it, and uh, I watch it every time I see one of those videos. I can't help myself. You're wondering what that is. When you put a Mentos into a Coca-Cola, it explodes. I mean, it just fizzes up. And so you get this group that claims to have soft hearts toward Jesus. They claim to believe in Jesus in some way. So Jesus shines light. He shines a light on them. He puts the Mentos onto the hearts to see how they will respond. And immediately, like a chemical reaction, their hearts, their language, flame up against him in rebellion. They they cannot contain their rebellion against the light. Their distaste for the light is exposed. But in this, we see that disciples are set free to believe and abide in Jesus. Now, In John chapter 5, a little bit earlier, at the healing, you remember when he healed the lame man? He healed the lame man and he turned his attention to the Pharisees. The Pharisees at that time were the main opposition. In this scene, it's a part of the crowd that has moved, they believe, to some sense of belief. So they went from listening to Jesus, and Jesus and the disciples are over here, they've shifted to joining the followers of Jesus, it appears. But what takes place in Jesus' exposure of truth, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, is the same idea that he communicated to the Pharisees. I'll read it for you. Back in John 5, Jesus said to the skeptical Pharisees, to the Pharisees, you do not have God's word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one who he has sent. And now, likewise, that's what Jesus says in verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly 
my disciples. So the combination of what's it mean to be a disciple is that you abide in the word of Jesus. You abide in Jesus' words because his word abides in you. And what Jesus does at the proclamation of truth, the proclamation of good news, of his nature and purpose and identity, is it exposes, it shows, like turning a light on into a dark room, it shows actually if a profession is indeed a possession of faith, if the Word of God actually is abiding in. So they're either moved to loving the Word of Jesus, so as we sing these songs of worship, as we hear Christ's words, as believers, we're moved to affection. Within us is a stirring up to say, yes, Jesus. Thank you for forgiveness, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. You're my King, Jesus. Thank you so much, Jesus, for the joy of being your disciples, of abiding in you. As believers, there's an affection, an affection for the Lord. But as unbelievers, there is a movement to opposition. There's an appallingness to this. And that's what comes out of them. This word abide, what I'd like you to do is flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's page 996 if you're in the Pew Bible. We're going to spend a few minutes there, so it'd be a good idea to get your eyes on the text so you can follow along well and benefit from this. And make sure I'm not messing with you and reading something totally different. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 through 15. This word abide, we saw it back in right here in John chapter 8, verse 31. The ESV and New King James translated that as abide in. New American and the net translation as continue. It's one who remains in, abides in, rests in. So in this scene, we walked through 2 Timothy uh, uh, a little over a year ago. And in that text, as we remember, it's Paul's words, parting words to his son in the faith, Timothy, that he's discipled, he's poured into. And in this little portion, Paul reminds Timothy of who Paul is by God's grace. He gives him a background, a reminder. What I want to note for us is let's be sure to observe who Paul is. Note who Paul is, what Paul looks like. Paint a profile of who Paul is. And then what he's going to do is he's going to paint a contrastive warning of imitators, deceivers, side by side. And he's going to warn Timothy that these people are around and among you. They will go from bad to worse. And then he gives a comforting plea on the, on the other side of the profile, the, the, the first person, Paul's picture, one who abides in the Lord. The second picture right here is those who do not, they're deceivers, they're imitators, which reflect the John chapter 8 people that Jesus are, is interacting with. And then he says to, to Timothy, you are like me on the other side of those guys. Which one of these are you? You're this one. So keep abiding, remain in the Scriptures that made you wise for salvation that you've been taught since your youth. So let's read that together. 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'll read it for us. Verse 10, Paul says, remember we're focusing on this idea of continuing, abiding. He says, you Timothy, however, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. So put a pin in that right there. Keep your finger there. Paul's not boasting about who he is. He's boasting about what God has done through him. Now look at the contrast in verse 12. Indeed, 
all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters, again, I think that's the John 8 group, clearly that Jesus is interacting with would be a great case study, a great example. While, all, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. He says, don't be like this group, but be aware of this group. Verse 14, but as for you, here's that word, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What a joy it is to be of the beloved. What a joy it is to be free. Disciples are set free to abide in Jesus. Now, we'll note in just a moment what their reaction was. We'll recall what their reaction was to the idea of being set free. But as believers, from this very component of what's it mean to rest under, to continue in, to abide in Jesus, how does that strike you? To abide in, to rest in, to continue in Jesus, to continue in the Word and to rest in Jesus. It's like a calm, joyful, peace-filled blanket of a parent wrapping around a child to abide in Jesus. You can't say that without smiling. To abide, Try it. To abide in Jesus. Try and say it without a, a smile on your face. You can't do it. Try to abide in Jesus. I know I wasn't speaking English, but I'm just trying to, to abide in Jesus. Like that thought is a joy-filled thought. To continue in Jesus, to rest in Jesus. And for many saints in our body who have endured special hardship during this time, discomfort and separation certainly from loved ones, to just stop right now, even if those are at home watching, to, to think, I'm, I'm continuing in Jesus. That is such a peace-giving understanding for the saint, for the believer, that those who do not know Christ would find the idea of a, a, abiding in and remaining under, continuing in under Jesus, they would find that distasteful. And that's what we see right away being painted for us of, of who a disciple is. And it flows right into verse 32 through 36. As we note that the second image of what a disciple is, is that disciples are freed from their former allegiances to false sinful ways. Disciples are freed from their former allegiances. We call it our testimony. How the Lord has freed us from false sinful ways. We've all had different allegiances. We've all fizzled differently in our sin allegiances. But having been freed, it brings us as believers again joy. We think of who we were and what the Lord's done in us and for us and in us and doing in us. And it moves us as believers to be joyful. To the pseudo-believers, look how it strikes them. Look what he tells them in verse 32 and 33. And, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And how do they answer him? Here comes the light. Here comes the Mentos. We are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now they're struck and offended. Why are they offended? Now, when we read this, if we're aware of the Scriptures, if we're aware of the Old Testament Scriptures, the Scriptures able to make one wise for salvation, 
we look and, and you can make it to the book of Exodus and you kind of look and say, do these faithful Jewish people not know their history? I mean, you get to Exodus and it's pretty clear they were slaves. And you keep reading further and they were taken off into captivity. Don't they know their background? Well, they do know their background. Don't they know their present? Remember, Rome right now is ruling over Judea. So are they, are they forgetful? Well, no, they're not forgetful. Dr. Kossenberger, one scholar, he paints a picture like this for us. He says, in a modern context, they might say something like, we may have been politically subject to foreign powers, but we were never really conquered. For freedom was an ingredient in the blessed promise to Abraham's descendants. And that's who they are. That's their bloodline. And people never enslaved need no liberator. Maybe an example that we're more accustomed to would happen in the 1200s with William Wallace. William Wallace was spot on. And this is the movie Braveheart, not a family-friendly movie, forewarned. But if you've seen that movie towards the end, he's rattling, this, he's rattling the Scots together. And he gives this line, and I'll be honest, I, I didn't look in the mirror and do this, but I tried to say the line I'm about to say reading it, and I couldn't do it. I just kept working myself. So I'm just going to probably yell it. I don't know how to control it. But he rallies the Scots, and he tells them what? They can take our lives. But they will never take our Yes, there it is, exactly. Stephen couldn't control himself. That's, that sparks within us, right? That something may happen to our bodies, but they can't break our wills. That's what the Jews are articulating to Jesus. How are you going to set us free when the promise we've received from Abraham is that we'll never really be captive? Captive. Immediately, this truth that Jesus exposes to them, they find offensive, distasteful, and they begin to run him down. And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. That's what you all do. He gives them the good promise. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. They, he promises them lasting freedom. And as believers, we hear Jesus' words that we will be free indeed forever. And we rejoice. And we look forward to His coming again. But to those that do not believe, to those that are not actually disciples, they're moved to offense. This statement you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free, ironically, has made its way across university campuses. On the University of Texas, a great university, no question. But across the entrance to the main building of the, univer of the university is this. Ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. On the original building, I looked up and found that on the original building of the CIA headquarters, I wasn't studying the CIA headquarters, it was I searched where this is that? And it told me, okay. But this same verse was engraved in the lobby of the CIA headquarters. How ironic. Is there any doubt that if one of those administrative leaders at either of those institutions would come out and say this verse in its context that all are bound in sin, enslaved to sin, but the truth of who Jesus is, if they believe in Him, it will set them free? 
If that statement was made, is there any doubt that that administrator would have to walk back that statement in a matter of time? These pseudo-disciples hear this claim and they're moved to an offense. But for the believer, it brings us to peace and joy that we joyfully can love and can serve others and can share the good news of Christ, the truth of the one who will set one free indeed, like no one and nothing else. That is the good news that God has given us as believers. That's why we rejoice in all seasons. So disciples are freed from their former allegiances to false sinful ways. And third, disciples are set free to lovingly serve God rather than serve the God of this world. Disciples are set free to lovingly serve God rather than to serve the God of this world. If we were a crowd, or imagine you're one of Jesus' original disciples, and you heard His words of being the truth that's come into the, the, the light that's come into the world, and there's a portion of the crowd that's hearing Him that changes positions and says, we believe too, you'd be so, we'd all be so excited. And so Jesus turns and begins talking to them. And all of a sudden, it gets real awkward tense. You ever been in a room with a conversation that really all of a sudden started escalating pretty quickly? It's already gotten intense because they're saying, we're not enslaved. What's your problem? And now I imagine we would have been able to hear a pin drop when we come to these verses. For Jesus tells them, oh, you're, you're right. I guess you, you're not enslaved. You, you, you joyfully, faithfully, faithfully serve your master. But your master is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Your God is the God of this world, the devil. He says that to the Jews that just claim to be believers in him. Now, the explosion, the, 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 the wick has been lit and it's continuing to get closer and closer to the detonation of these individuals, these pseudo-believers looking for stones to kill him. It's just taken up a whole nother step. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul tells us that the God of this world who blinds the minds of those who don't believe, that's who the devil is. He is the God of this world who blinds the minds of those who don't believe. Now, what does that not mean? It does not mean that, G, that, that the devil is on par with God. But he's a God in the sense that he has a domain that God has for a season, only for a time, and that will come to an end. As death and Hades and, and Satan will be cast into the eternal lake of fire. But for now, he, he has a dominion over the earth that will end he can only do what the Lord permits him to do, and he will be held accountable to what he desires to do and does do. Just like we might say our governing authorities that the Lord has placed us over, over us in this season. God has given them a measure, but there is a king over them, correct? That they'll give an account for. And so too will we. But he tells them that, that their God is the devil their father, the devil. And how do they respond back to Jesus? Look how this escalates. Well, look at this. Look how this escalates. They go to him, and it seems they try to stab him with a knife and twist it with words. They knew enough about Jesus to know his parents, Mary and Joseph. They knew enough about his origin story to say, yeah, we think this is the one like Moses. This is the prophet of God. Let's follow him. 
They know enough of his background to know that the, the, the scriptures teach and that he teaches. And it's said of him that he was conceived of, a, of the virgin birth. And what do they say? Look at their response. You can hear the, the, the language, the inflection of the devil in their words. They say, we were not born of sexual immorality. You can imagine the like you. We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. I think they're mocking Jesus' origins. They're saying, Joseph and Mary had you out of wedlock, didn't they, Jesus? Trying to get him to doubt his identity and his purpose and mission. But they, as the devil, will not be successful. They do not love God, and therein Jesus sent from God. Instead, they love the God of this world. Now, man is not neutral. That's what we see in this text. Very clear. We see it all through Scripture, but man and, and women are not neutral. Over all the world, we serve someone. We're either bound in service and, 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 and to sin and the devil, the God of this world, fulfilling the desires of our flesh, the lust of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, where we are freed to be servants of the living God, the one who loves us and cares for us and gives us life in his Son, and who adopts us and make us, makes us from enemies to heirs in Christ and commissions us, sends us to go joyfully to love and to serve others all around us, that we're made family with brothers and sisters of Christ from all different backgrounds, all different skin colors, all different languages. We're made family because of the blood of Christ. This is good news. But it's news that's a stumbling block to the unbeliever. But as believers, the compassion and joy that this should give us to serve others and to pray, God, would you free them from the bondage that they have to sin and to service of the God of this world? Bring them to yourself. Use us. Help us to love them and to serve them as light in a dark world. Transform them. This is good news. This is who we are as disciples. To love Jesus. To hear these words of Jesus and to be moved to joy. There's not shame in our past story, believer. There is joy in the power of what Christ has actually been able to do to forgive us, to adopt us, to shower us in love and forgiveness and purpose and hope to abide in Jesus. That's the good news. That's the good news. Fourth, we note that disciples are kept by God. Who or what are disciples? They are those who are kept by God to keep His Word for His glory. Verse 48 through 59. Disciples are kept by God to keep His Word for His glory. Well, the fuse has been lit. The people are moved increasing ways to anger. For the second time in the Gospel of John, a crowd has accused Jesus of being demon-possessed. It would be like Satan, wouldn't it, to accuse Jesus of being demon-possessed. These men serve, perhaps there was women in the group as well, probable. 
they accuse Jesus now of being demon-possessed. Their accusation accusing his parents of infidelity has now shifted to claiming that he is demon-possessed. Twice now. And what puts it over the top to finally make the fuse hit the bomb? Jesus affirms his identity. Just as the serpent in the very beginning, can you really trust God? Can you really believe his word? Did God really say? So too the serpent, through these servants, challenged Jesus' identity. Jesus is not shaken. He knows exactly who he is. And we see in verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they, as all the people we've seen interact with Jesus, from Nicodemus who said, how in the world can I go back into my mom and be born again? To which all the women said, ouch, or at the very least, ooh, okay. To the woman at the well that says, well, give me that water. I want that water. I don't want to have to drink again. Then John chapter 6 crowd that thought they were believers and Jesus says come and eat of my body and drink of my blood he says I am take of me I'm the bread from heaven and all of them are just stumped on the physical components they're spiritually dead they're spiritually blind and what do they say to Jesus You're not even 50 years old. How could Abraham, our forefather, look forward to your day and rejoice? You're not even 50. And Jesus says, He is the ego I me. I am. He is the eternal present one. And what do they do? They go to pick up stones to put them to the test. You're the eternal present one? Let us take a few shots and see. Their hearts are moved from confessing belief, they think, to actually seeing who Jesus is and exposes their hatred of the light. They cannot rest in the light. They cannot sit in the light. They cannot remain in the light and with the light. They cannot abide in the light because they don't have union to God by Jesus. So they will not tolerate communion with Jesus and His Word. If you don't know Christ, stop running from the light. The parts of your heart and mind that run and want to take shelter and throw anything that you can at the light or to ignore the light, come into the light and live. Ask for forgiveness. Come under the yoke of Jesus and rest in Him. Receive Him. Ask Him to forgive you and to become the King of your life. That you would remain in Him and rest in Him. That's the Gospel. That's the good news. As believers, we gather not as those who have figured it all out, but who have been found by the light, who rest in the love of God, who abide in Him by grace. We hear these statements of Jesus and we're moved to joy. We're moved to joy. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And the believer says, thank you, God, 
Thank you, God. That's the goodness of the gospel. That's the goodness we see of who and what a believer is. That's good news. And it leads us into our next steps. Two next steps, both dealing with the issue of peace. The situation, an encounter that is so intense. As a believer, it gives us peace. Because we listen to Jesus' statements, these revelations of truth, and we're moved to say, yes, that's true. I believe. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. And the believer is warmed and moved to peace. So in this first next step, would you pray actively? Would you take time, whether it's right now or later today, to ask that God would put on your heart and mind three people in your life that you would look at and say, I don't, I'm pretty sure they do not have this peace from and with abiding in God. And ask that God would put them onto your mind and heart. And would you pray for them daily? Just pray for them daily that God would rescue them and show them His peace that is theirs in Christ. And third, what peace do you have in the Lord? To know that these men went to go to try to kill Him, but He hid Himself. Even the most wicked and deceptive of plots by men will never overcome the perfect plan and will of God. As a believer, how does that move you to peace and to joy this morning? To know that God never wastes a hurt. That He is sovereign and good and you are resting in the palm of your God. Would you reach out this week, contact a believer, and just celebrate the peace that is yours in Christ together. Stir each other up. Stoke each other in love and good deeds. That's the good news that we have this morning, church.